Thanks for listening to the Red Haven Advisors podcast. This podcast is provided for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon for investment advice. None of the information contained in this podcast or in our material shall constitute an offer to sell or solicit any offer to buy a security. The information and opinions contained in any of our materials are believed to be reliable, but accuracy and completeness cannot be guaranteed. Please consult with your financial advisor before making any investment decisions. Today is September 4th, 2020, and you're listening to episode one of the Red Haven Advisors podcast. My name is Seamus McCarthy, and I'm the founder and portfolio manager here at Red Haven Advisors. With me is my wife, Heidi. Hello there. Heidi is the most financially savvy non-finance person you'll ever meet. I will put that on a business card someday. (laughs) And today we're going to be talking about the problem with diversified index funds during asset bubbles. All right. Well, I actually have a few questions, so I'm going to get started here. All right. So my first question is actually, what are the macroeconomic or market indicators that make you think that we're actually in an asset bubble? So the things to think about when we get into these types of financial conditions are, is that usually it's not just pervasive in one particular asset class. So in today's, for example, if we look at a whole variety of asset classes, we can see hallmarks of an asset bubble in pretty much every asset class. So if we start with stocks, we look at stocks, we start looking at things like multiples, that would be price to earnings, price to sales, price to book, all of the classic indicators for these, the way we think about these asset classes, they're in record high territory. The same is also true with bond prices. Yields and price are inversely related. So when you think about the yield on bonds today, they're basically at zero for a big portion of the curve. And so by extension, that means that the bond prices for that particular part of the yield curve is at record highs. So now you have bond prices at record high highs, you have stock prices at record highs, and then other asset classes include real estate. If you look at the Case-Shiller Index for residential real estate, it's higher now than it was during the last time we had a, a housing bubble. And so, I mean, granted, yeah, you know, 10, 12 years have gone by since the last bubble, but these asset prices need to be in somewhat correlated to incomes. And that, that relationship between asset prices and income is stretched again. And that's even if you factor in uh, lower interest rates to make house prices more affordable. So really, when you look at all these market indicators, they all point in the same direction. We're in the middle of the biggest asset bubble in history. Great. Well, I guess if we accept the premise that we're in an asset bubble, what are some of the forces that would create this environment? Why did it happen, in your opinion? Yeah, so there's there's a lot of things going on that really have driven this asset bubble. Um, I think, you know, in, in one way or another, people have been hearing about this for years you know, the, the most obvious one is central bank intervention. You know, all across the planet now, central banks have, have got their fingerprints all over the asset markets. The Fed today, it just became evident that they're the single biggest uh, owner of mortgage-backed securities. So basically, the Fed, our, our central bank, the United States Central Bank, is underwriting housing policy in the United States. You know, so that, that of course, since they're really not an economic actor, they're more of a political actor they don't give a damn about what the price of an asset is. They're, they're just trying to do these, their, their, uh, their actions to create some sort of political effect or some sort of 
other factor in the economy, like quote unquote employment or something else. I mean, they're not really thinking about it the way that a normal person would think of their their uh, profit and loss statement or their their you know four hundred one k balance. These guys are working to a different agenda. So that's one of the big factors that's driving these prices. The other the other big things that are really driving these prices are uh, are, are passive funds. You know, when you think about a passive fund, these are index funds primarily, you know, or, uh, 401k investors, you know, both institutions that are running money for 401k plans or, or pension plans. These guys are basically obligated to buy stocks, you know, on a very fixed schedule. So every time money comes into them, they're forced to go into the market and buy, buy stocks and bonds. And when you have this type of activity with very price insensitive investors, Anytime they get money, they buy. So whether or not the the stock is high or the stock is low, they just buy indiscriminately. And, you know, when you have people acting that way without having any sensitivity to price or fundamental factors, the price discovery mechanism effectively is subverted. So that's kind of how the the passive funds are playing into this. And there's a lot more to this passive passive funds uh uh, impact. There's a fellow by the name of Mike Green. He's done some excellent work on this, and in the, in the, uh, the he's done some really in-depth analysis on on exactly how these passive funds are impacting the market. If if anyone's interested in learning more about just how impactful these passive funds are, we'll we'll have links in the show notes that you can go listen to over an hour worth of you know in-depth analysis from this fellow Mike Green. He's he's done a phenomenal job on it. And and really the 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 other big factor that's that's driving this when you think about it is the impact of cap weighted indexes, market cap weighted indexes. So basically, what this means is is that you have this index, say the S and P five hundred, and you have your index fund, which uh, in a lot of cases is a cap weighted S and P five hundred index fund. Basically, the big stuff that's in that basket of five hundred stocks sucks all the oxygen out of the room. I'm talking about the top six names. These are like your Facebooks, your Apples, the, the tech companies, the big six tech companies. They're today, they're worth about 25% of that index. So as, as more and more m- money moves into the, the passive space, these funds have to keep that, 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 the weighting and all of that new money goes in and just keeps driving these things bigger and bigger and bigger. And so in effect, it creates this momentum effect that drives the stock, the, the, the S&P 500 higher and higher. Great. So I did want to go back on the central banks because I think that from my perspective as a non-license holding finance person, I kind of think that, so you, you mentioned them flooding the, the market with dollars, basically. So when central banks lower interest rates, it also pushes people looking for a yield into a riskier asset. So like, for example, with pension funds, when this, when the central banks lower rates, doesn't that push the pension funds out of a savings account where in the past maybe they could get 6 to 8% um, just by plotting it down into a savings account? And now the pension funds are guaranteeing their pension holders a certain yield when they retire or a certain amount of dollars and now they have to park their money into something riskier and riskier. And so recently, that might have been the stock market looking for these uh, growth stocks that are tremendously overvalued or um, potentially even higher yield, riskier corporate bonds. 
Do you have thoughts on that? Yeah, basically. So if you have these, like think of your your average pension fund, they have a, a particular hurdle rate they need to hit every year to meet their obligations. So they have these pension funds, they have people that depend on them being able to disperse cash against a promise. And in order for them to be able to reliably do that, they have a hurdle rate, call it eight and a half percent annually. So if you have a pension fund that has an eight and a half percent hurdle rate, and then your central bank, in our case, the Federal Reserve comes in, and then they cut interest rates from, say, 5% to zero, or somewhere around there, that means that the pension fund now has half the portfolio, assuming you know half the portfolio was invested in bonds, half the portfolio is really not going to go anywhere in terms of the, the cash flow that's on that side of the, the portfolio. So the, the pension fund is basically forced out into the, the risk spectrum where they have to take on more risk to pick up what was lost in, in on the, the bond side of the portfolio. So yeah, I mean, they may increase the allocation to stocks. They may invest in riskier asset classes. They may, they're going to, they may lever up. It basically forces them in to take on more risk. And by doing so, it further subverts the price mechanism. Great. Okay. So basically what I'm hearing here is that you're saying that diversified index funds are risky, not because of the quality of the company, but because of the valuation of the company. So with that in mind, how does a value-oriented investor like Red Haven approach investing, and what do you consider an investment opportunity? So the, yeah, to just to go back and emphasize that what you're saying there, I mean, these diversified index funds, there's, there's nothing fundamentally wrong with the assets in these funds. I mean, if you could get these index funds at, at good prices, I mean, that would be that would be ideal. You know, if you could pick up one of these, these index funds at half the price that it's trading at today, I think you'd have a, an, you know, a fantastic return from them. But the problem is, is not the quality of the asset. It's, it's the, the price. Even the best company in the world isn't worth an infinite price. And so when you're paying a lot of money, you can expect a little return effectively. That's that's kind of the problem with these index funds today. It's not the it's not the index fund. It's not the index fund idea. It's just that you're 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 paying too much. And the diversification, you know, that's you get some benefit from diversification, sure. But if everything more or less inside of that portfolio, that asset, if everything inside the S and P five hundred, you know, on average is overpriced, then you own a whole bunch of different overpriced stuff, and you're not going to get any benefit. So really what we try and do here at Red Haven fundamentally is we, we look at the assets that are available to us. These are stocks, bonds, preferred stocks. Everything that you can pretty much look at is in our purview. We don't buy everything, but we, we do keep a, a pulse on as much of the financial landscape as we can. And what we do is we, we look at it in a very, very simple way. You know, we look at the asset, we think about what kind of cash flow that the asset can generate, and then we look at the price that we can buy it for. If we can find a big discrepancy between what the, the asset is worth on a fundamental basis and the price that we can acquire the asset, that's how we think about it. In effect, in the simplest terms, we're trying to buy a dollar bill for 50 cents. Great. So first of all, I'd like to congratulate everyone who's made it this far. Um, if you haven't determined that we are potentially the world's most boring couple, <laughs> we're here to convince you that in the next uh, few minutes that perhaps you may want to reevaluate your decision. Secondly, so you were just talking about fundamentals. So you said that you use fundamentals 
to evaluate things. Can you describe just a little bit about what that means and the mechanics of those metrics? Really, we think about it uh, in, in the, the simplest terms. I mean, these are the, the metrics that a lot of people are already familiar with. We think about the price to earnings. That's basically how much do I have to pay for a dollar of earnings? We think about it that way. We think about it in terms of price to book. That's basically how much am I paying for this company relative to the value of its assets? Um, we think about it in some some other ways too. Uh, some some folks may have heard of the uh, the Buffett indicator. This is Warren Buffett. Um, I think everyone probably knows who Warren Buffett is by now. Many of us want him to be our grandfather or great uncle. <laughs> Warren Warren has made billions of dollars by practicing a very simple technique over his whole life. He's ninety years old, and he's basically done a fundamental value investor approach to this where he looks at the fundamentals. And one time in an interview, this was about 20 years ago, um, her name is Carol Loomis from Fortune Magazine. She was talking to Warren and, and asked him what his single best method was for evaluating overall the health of the stock market in terms of price to value. And, and Buffett's response was, uh, he, he looks at a broad market index, something like the Wilshire 5000 or the S&P 500, a very broad market index. And then he looks at that relative to the total value of the economy. So if you think about the Wilshire 5000 relative to, to the economy, GDP, that, that was his indicator. And his advice was if you could pick that up, if you could buy stocks at a time when that, that metric was somewhere you know, in the 70 to 80% range, he felt that you would do fine given time. And when you look at that, that, in that, uh, that ratio today, it's at about twice what Warren recommended. So, um, you're paying basically double what Warren recommended to pay. And, uh, as history will be a guide, um, Warren has a pretty good idea of what value is and a pretty good sense of when to buy and when to sell and buying something for twice what Warren recommends there's not a lot of people that have made much money with that approach. Nice. So you're saying that if an index fund was valued, uh, if the market to GD- market cap to GDP was basically 70%, you would say it's okay to drop money into an index fund at that point. Absolutely. When you think about price relative to value, if you could buy those index funds at a point when your index fund as a whole was worth about 80% of the economy, the data shows that that's a, that's a good time to get in. Great. Thank you. Okay. So I would like to play devil's advocate a little bit here. Are there any criticisms out there that attempt to refute any of the metrics that you just described and what are they and why, why are you skeptical of, of that? Yeah. You know, there's every metric by itself has criticism. You know, another one that we use is the case Schiller index or the CAPE ratio, which basically takes it attempts to to uh, take the last 10 years of earnings and smooth them out and also inflation adjust them. And, you know, the idea behind that is really to get some idea about the earning power of the businesses or the business. If you're if you're applying it to just one business, if you're applying it to a whole a whole broad index like the S&P 500, it's really to try and understand what the the underlying assets can produce given a full business cycle. Now, the criticism of these, of course, is that they don't give you any idea about timing. And 
That's absolutely right. I mean, you could go out today and you could look at the Buffett indicator. You could go out today and look at the K-Shiller, you know, the CAPE ratio. You'd conclude that they're overvalued. And that's right. I mean, but the critics would say that it's been overvalued for five or more years. And they're right. We've we've been overvalued for a long time. You know, and that's that's not to say that it's not going to continue along this path. But make no mistake, when you overpay today, you'll underperform tomorrow. Great. Okay, so I guess how can how can investors find out what specific stocks and bonds are in their index and mutual funds? I mean, so we now know that things are overvalued. So now let's say we want to know what's in there. How can you find out? Yeah, so I think this is the takeaway. We've been chatting about this for about 15 minutes now. And I'd say really the takeaway for, for this segment, if you get nothing else out of this, I'd say you really, really need to... Take, download your latest statement from your from your broker or financial advisor. You need to go in there. You need to look and you need to see what funds you own. You need to look in there. You need to find the ticker symbol. And then you need to go to Google and put that ticker symbol into Google and then say, ticker symbol, holdings. You need to find out specifically what holdings, what stocks, what bonds are in that fund. And when you look into that fund, most cases, what you're going to find is that you own pretty much what everyone else owns, right? You own a diversified index fund, so you're going to own pretty much what everyone else owns. So what you're going to find is that you have a large allocation probably to big cap tech stocks, large cap tech stocks. And you know, today, if you look at this and you go look that up, what you're probably going to find is that you have an S&P 500 index fund. You'll have some something like that. You'll have these companies. And so what, what will be in there will be Apple, Amazon, Microsoft, Google, Facebook, the FANG stocks, FANG plus Microsoft. That's what you have. And if you look at what you're paying for these companies, you're paying something for the, the price to earnings north of 30. For Microsoft, it's 40. And for Amazon, it's 131. Remember, these are good companies. There's nothing fundamentally wrong with these companies. They're great companies. They'll be around for a long time. They're going to continue to make money. They have, you know, arguably monopolies in their industry. Great companies, extremely solid companies. If you work there, that's great. You probably have a good job. You know, you're going to, you're going to do fine. Your investment portfolio owns something that is priced beyond what the company's earnings will deliver. Again, it's a great company, not necessarily a great price. If you want precedent for this, go look what would have happened if you invested in Microsoft in 2000. It took 17 years for that stock to get back to where you purchased it in 2000. That was because you bought it at a high price. That was the dot-com bubble. And I think that we're going through another version of that today. I think we're in the midst of probably the biggest asset bubble in history. So understanding the holdings inside of your funds, inside of your 401k, inside of your investment money, knowing what you own is absolutely critical. That is exactly what you need to know today. It doesn't mean you need to take any action, but you need to be, you need to understand what you own and be comfortable with what you own. Know the risk you're bearing. If holding Amazon at 131 times earnings is something you're comfortable with, that's great. From an investment perspective, I would feel uncomfortable doing that with my own money, but everyone's situation is different. You just need to understand the risk you're bearing. 
Great. Okay. So what options are available to investors that are concerned now about owning overvalued assets? Now you've painted us a picture. So now (laughs) what do we do? (laughs) Yeah, uh, I'd recommend uh, before doing any of this, I would recommend pouring a stiff drink. That's that's (laughs) all. Get get your glass of whiskey and sit down and then and then figure it out and then pencil all this out. Understand what you got. And then just think about what you want, you know, think about what risks you want. If it turns out that owning a lot of this stuff is expensive and you feel like, you know, now's a good time to look for other options. I think now's the time to, to, to go talk to your financial advisor, tell them what your concerns are. Ask them, ask them if uh, holding a quarter of your assets in big tech stocks is, is really the best thing for you or, or, you know, her ask him or her if uh, there's, there's other options available here at Red Haven, we have a whole bunch of other ideas. We don't we don't own companies that are trading at thirty times earnings at the you know the top of arguably the top of a credit cycle and the top of a business cycle. It's I I I don't know. I don't think that's a good move right now. I'm not recommending anything to anybody. Everyone's situation is different, but I think that uh, really thinking hard about valuation is probably the most important thing you can do today. Great. Okay. Well, so assuming someone would be interested in just finding out more from you, is there a way to contact you? Our website is redhavenadvisors.com and our email is info at redhavenadvisors.com. And you know, the, the, the whole reason that we started this company, we had a bunch of friends in the, in the late 90s that got swept up in the dot-com bubble. We had a bunch of friends that got swept up in the housing bubble in the mid-2000s. Now we're seeing the same thing and it's, it's frustrating. It's sad. It's going to lead to heartache in Montana where I was raised. They say that there's no education in the second kick from a mule and there's no education in the third kick from a mule either. This being the third asset bubble in 20 years, I think now's really the time to, to, to call up your financial advisor, understand what other options there are than owning overvalued assets and give it some serious thought. I mean, this this could be the difference between you retiring when you're 50 and you retiring when you're 70. This is an opportunity. If you think about where we're at right now and you think about there's two paths. One is you do nothing and you basically bet your future on Federal Reserve, central banks and hope. The other one is you go into this eyes open, understand the risk and make a conscious decision whether or not you want to be holding overvalued assets, holding, hoping that they continue to rise, or you pull back, you find an alternative path. Nobody can time the future. Nobody can time the market. Anyone that tells you they can is lying. That's just not, that's not possible. But thinking opportunistically and using value as your guideline will put you on track to be ahead. And if anyone has any doubt about how value can be used to make better business decisions, there's a guy in Omaha that begs to differ. Sounds good. Well, thanks for answering all of my questions today. Thank you very much for uh, for the discussion. It's fun. And hopefully everyone out there gets some value out of this. And We'll continue making these. You know, we started Red Haven in, in, in May of this year, May of 2020. And so if you're out there, and you're thinking about other options, give us a shout. You know, there's, there's, there's nothing, nothing to lose. It's 15 minutes. You get some new ideas. Give us a shout. It's uh, or give it, send us an email. It's info at redhavenadvisors.com. And 
Again, my name is Seamus. Thank you very much for listening. Cheers. See you at episode two.